We are going to get dead serious about the Gospel Commission, which says, go into all the world, which is Mark 16, 15. What's our response? It's on the screen. Here am I, send me. I is very personal. So it requires a personal commitment and an inner compulsion, like uh, Paul said, necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. I got to do it. It's just burning inside me. And the words of Jesus... Because we have to be deliberate and very, very careful in how we speak. I send you, I say send me God, how does he send me? I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise and harmless. How shall be wise and harmless? This is the way Paul did it. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those who are under the law, as under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law. To the weak, I became as weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So with this idea that we should understand who we are talking to, we get into the actual commission. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, what are the words? In all the world. Go into all the world. But the world is not described in those words. It is described in Revelation. And there are four words that describe the world in Revelation. The first one is nation. The next, tribe, tongue, and people. Let's look at some United Nations statistics on these four and see how we are doing as a Seventh-day Adventist church. Here's the first one. Tribe means ethnic groups. We have anywhere from 1,300 to 27,000 of them uh, on earth. And Seventh-day Adventists work in the majority of those. So are we going to the world? Yes, sir. How about tongue or language? The United Nations has listed more than 6,000 languages. The first 500 will cover more than 75% of the world's population. 800 will cover close to 90% of the world's population. Guess how many languages the Seventh-day Adventists work in the world today? 921 languages. Are we going to the world? Yes, sir, we are going to the world. How about countries? Nations. The United Nations lists 194 member countries and 38 non-member countries, making a total of 232. How many do the Seventh-day Adventists work in? A whopping 216. And actually at the last general conference, we had 227 flags represented. Wow. Only the Roman Catholics work in more. Or actually more than 200. So there are only two Christian groups going to the world. The Roman Catholics, the Seventh-day Adventists. Others, hardly there. They go to many places, but nowhere near these two. But look at the difference between these two. The membership, the Roman Catholics are 1.2 billion with a B. Seventh-day Adventists, 20 million. How long have they been around? The Roman Catholics, more than 1,500 years. And this, this bitty little group, just 150 years. So 2% of the membership, one-tenth of the time equal. So are we going to the world? Yes, sir, we are going. So language and tribe and nation. And what is the fourth one? Anyone remember? People. <laughs> These are people. So what is people? Here's what I have done. I've made it into a belief system groups. So the people means religions, belief systems. The United Nations has a bunch of them, but they made it into ten. There are thousands. And how do you make thousands into ten? Well, number eight is all the others. So you can make any number into any other number if you just put all the others. So here are the ten groups. Christian, in order of decreasing membership. Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Baha'i, Jew, Sikh. Number eight, all the others. Number nine, atheist. Ten, non-professor. Don't, don't care for anything. Uh, let's make the all the others, instead of just one, make it 91. So 91 plus 9 is 100. Out of this hundred, how many do the Seventh-day Adventists work in? Just one. The overwhelming majority of those who join the Seventh-day Adventist Church are from the other Christian groups. We just don't know what to do when the people talk about some others. Oh, I can tell you about what it says in Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah and Psalms and, you know, First Corinthians... But if he says, I don't care for your Bible, then, you, then we don't know what to do. I have stated it in a, in a slightly different way. 
I have called them stations, uh, a series of intellectual positions. And here they are. Number one is the secular mind. He doesn't care about what is there. He is interested in what he's doing. He doesn't care about God. But he has to decide between whether there is a God or whether there is no God. And finally, say he decides there is a God, becomes a theist. So from station one, he becomes station two. Now, as a theist, a person who says there is a God, he must decide now what is the name of this God and the identity of this God. Will he be called Krishna or Allah or Ahura Mazda of the Zoroastrians or Yahweh or Jesus? Which one? And finally, he does choose, for example, that he, becomes, he chooses Jesus and becomes a Christian. So that's station number three. Station number four, he has to decide whether to be orthodox or to protest. And he decides to become a Protestant. Then as a Protestant, how many denominations do you think there are? Thousands, right? People have counted. Some of them say about 33,000. So now we've got to decide which one. And in his search, he finally comes to Seventh-day Adventists. So these are the intellectual stations that a person will pass if you start at the secular point. Why have I put this out? For this one reason, among the others. That every one of these stations has a certain way of expressing themselves. In other words, they have their own language, their own jargon, their own way of what is valuable, what is not. Every language on earth has its own value system. What does a language have? A value system. So when you want to go and speak to somebody, please learn that language. Because they have a value system, and in that value system, something are very valuable, and something are just taboo. If you don't know those, you'll step on everybody's toes, and that's what we usually do. So we have to learn the language at each of these levels. So now, we, we said and we acknowledged, according to the UN statistic, that we are not going to one and two. We just don't. You're not bothered. They're not on our radar. What will happen? No, with that five, I drew a picture of a house. Three parts in the foundation. Number four is the walls, and number five is the roof. Now, what would happen if we took away the secular and the theist from our message? Look at how the house now looks. How stable is that? And some of them have said, no, doc. By the way, I'm a physician, so they're calling me, no, doc. You knocked off. It doesn't look good. <laughs> keep the foundation. Okay, let's keep the foundation. Then you've got nothing left. <laughs> some of them say, oh, no, no, keep, keep, keep at least a little bit of the foundation stable and then uh, something of the top. Okay, fine. Let's keep the walls. Then you have no roof. And you get drenched in the rain. Then, no, no, we need a roof. Okay, take the roof, but you can't even stand in your house. What we do need is this. We need the full message. Then we are going to the world. Listen to this statement. Millions upon millions of souls ready to perish, bound in chains of ignorance, have never so much as heard of Christ's love for them. Were our condition and theirs to be reversed, what would we desire them to do for us? We would desire that they would come. So from our point of view, go. So why do we not go? When you ask the question why, it forms a kind of a series of whys. So there's one series that we will go through just now. Why do we not go to them? Because we're afraid. Why are we afraid? We might be made to look foolish. Why would we made to be made to look foolish? Because we might lose the discussion and the argument. And why will we lose that? Because we may not have the correct answers. Why do we not have the correct answers? We do not have adequate information to talk to them. Why do we not have adequate information? Because there's no source within reach to supply us with that information. So now, let's do it backwards. Suppose there is information in your hands. Then we will have adequate information. We will have the correct answers. We will not lose the argument. We will not be made to look foolish. And we will not be afraid to go. So what am I saying? If you are equipped, which right now as a church, we are very sadly missing on that point, deficient. But if we are equipped, nobody will be afraid to go to anyone on earth. 
You can speak to anybody and hold your own. Search Seminars International, which is my ministry, is a ministry that aims to provide reasonable, well-researched, and intellectually credible information in defense of the God of the Bible in the language, in the expressions, in the jargon and value system of those among the thinking and questioning public, not just the Christians, public. That's where we are supposed to go if we are really going to go to the world. Non-Christians number how many on the screen? Five billion. How many Christians are there on, this, on planet Earth? About two billion. So we are aiming at the two billion and the five billion are simply not on our radar. We should be able to converse with them. How? To the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the weak, I became as a weak. To the person who was under the law, I became as under the law. So how do we apply that now to what we are just saying? To the secular, I will become as a secular thinker. To the non-Christian, I will become as one who understands non-Christian ideas. I will learn to speak in the language and the value system of anyone with whom I want to share the truth about my God. We've got to be humble and teach ourselves. For this is what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Be ready to give a defense, an apologia, a basis to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. We have a hope, we have a reason, but most cannot defend that reason. There was a person who told me that, you know, God saved him. Jesus. He prayed to Jesus and Jesus helped him out. So I went up to him and he was my friend so I could tell him what I wanted and we could have a chat. I said, Jesus didn't help you. It was Allah who helped you. Jesus is just a prophet. Allah is God. Now what do you say? And he was nonplussed. What do you say? How do you respond to that? And finally he turned to me and said, I get you. I understand what you're trying to say. We have a reason for our hope, but we cannot defend it. Friends, we've got to defend it. Because we will be called upon to do that. Not in our homes and in our churches, but way out there. Where they laugh and they think we are all gone, um, lost our marbles, we lost our mind. That's what they say. You guys are dummies, just blind believers. But that's what we are going to change and we should change. But, and the defense... The apology must include information for the secular mind where only science, reason, and logic are of value and welcomed. But will science, reason, and logic actually work? Look at what Romans 1.20 says. His invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead, are understood by the things, what's there on the screen? By the things that are made. So that they are without excuse. 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes will stretch out. <laughs> because our concentration usually does not last more than 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> and I am not uh, dancing up here. I'm not, a, I'm not a, you know, I can't crack too many jokes. Keep you busy. So stretch out. Just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. All right. Max Jammer was a friend of Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientists this earth has known. There was another guy who was with him, who agreed and disagreed with him on some topics, and his name was Spinoza. So Max Jammer knew both, and he said, These are, this is a topic in which they both agreed. Look at what they both agreed on. Einstein agreed with Spinoza that he who knows nature knows God. Because the pursuit of science in studying nature leads to religion and God. Wow. Let's underline those two words. The pursuit of science in studying nature leads to religion and God. Not the pursuit of spiritual values in studying the Bible. Nah. It says the pursuit of science. So some have come up to me and said, what is this you're talking about? Reason and logic and science and all. Teach the people faith. Belief, then they will be strong. I point us to our true and final exemplar. Look at these words. 
spread out before him. Who is the him? Jesus. Was the great library of God's created works. He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hands had written in earth and sea and sky. He gathered stores of what kind of knowledge? Scientific knowledge. From where? Nature. Look, most of us think he sat at his mother's knee and studied only the Torah. The Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah and the Psalms and all those. No, Jesus was a scientist. He studied the life of plants, botany, animals. What is that? Zoology. Life of man, anthropology. Hey, I thought he only read the Bible. No, sir. He was well-rounded in the way he grew up. And because of that, when he spoke to the people, he spoke with authority because he had already studied it. He studied the life of plants, animals, life of man. Thus to Jesus, the significance of the word and works of God was unfolded as he was trying to understand what? The reason of things. Most of us think Jesus had it all easy. No, as a young man, he had to find out why things were happening the way they were. Why do these people behave like this? Why do these animals behave like this? Why do these plants grow up like this? Just like any other human. That's where we are supposed to do. The Bible is the only book that has the confidence and courage to place the base of its entire theology on the foundation of an open witness outside its pages. And hence, it does not attempt to prove the existence of God. It does not. Why? Because the existence of God as a proof is not found in the Bible. It's found outside in nature, and that's the witness. And you must not tamper with the witness. Just leave it alone. In other words, the Bible cannot twist the words in nature and tell you to look at the Bible. It must just leave them separate. And then it's a good witness. So what we have to learn is to find out what is there in nature that really leads to that. For that, we need four things. Number one is humility. Number two is honesty. Number three is calmness. And number four is respect. We're not going to go into all of these. By the way, this is how I present when I go to the secular universities. We go through these steps. And I tell them, look, if you really want to get as close to the truth of the matter as possible, then you've got to be humble. You've got to be honest. Give credit where credit is due. You've got to be calm. Don't get upset with me just because I'm saying something you don't like. And I'm not going to be upset with you because you say something I don't like. No, we'll keep our, our emotions down because if we don't, then the emotions get the upper hand and once they get, get the upper hand, there's no talk after that. <laughs> then it is punching. <laughs> and there's no way really you're going to get anywhere if you start fighting. So keep calm, respect. Respect does not mean admiration or even agreement. Respect means I allow you to do the search and come to any conclusion you want. And you come to. I will not agree. I may not agree. But I respect you. So when you respect, you expect respect back. You don't have to agree with me. But see what I've done. Evaluate what I've done. And that's what we're going to do just now. Stretch out again. <laughs> because we're going to go through now the question. The first question that I usually ask out there. How can a rational, thinking, scientific mind ever accept the concept of God? How can that be? Ah, okay, ready. Let's go. So I call it the great divide. A, the atheistic side, God, non-existent, fictitious. B, the believing side, God is in existence and he is factual. Now, I wish I had more time to tell you that these are the only two options there are. But out there you will find another third one trying to get to be an option. It's called agnosticism. I don't know. That's their claim. Agnost. A without gnosis knowledge. I don't have enough information, so I don't know which one is it. There's a God, there's no God. I don't know. But I don't know is not an option. Think. If I asked you what is in my hand, an apple or uh, an orange, and if you say, I don't know, it doesn't mean there's a third fruit called I don't know. 
it is still apple and orange. So saying, I don't know, doesn't solve the problem at all. Friends, if you say, I don't know, in your tests, you'll never get any marks in your exam. <laughs> You've got to say one or the other. So here we've got only two options. When we do this question, we should not only be fair and balanced in our assessment, but we should make a deliberate attempt to show that we have been even-handed, fair, and unbiased. We should give both sides the same chance to win. That means we are playing a fair game. Only then can we be sure and satisfied that the real winner has won. Got it? Most of us start on one side and sit right there and say, you better come on this side. But really, when you go to a person who's a thinker, you've got to say, hey, you drop yours, I'll also drop mine, let's both become inquirers and look at it together. And that is why you see on the top of the screen the name of my seminar. What does it say? Come search with me. I'm not telling you, sir or madam. You really want to know? Come and sit with me and we both will search together. Come search with me. If you want to search as an inquirer, then you've got to drop your own belief during the search. Because you're asking them to drop it. Only if you drop it will you become an inquirer and that is the most fundamental position we should ask the others to come to before making any decision. What we do is just grab them and say, come here. No, sir. Ask them to stay right there. Will you become an inquirer with me? That's the first thing. Become an inquirer and then we both will look for the truth of the matter. Then both of us look at both. That's the pan process. We look at both. There is a God, there is no God. So we look at the pros and cons of this. So there's two columns of arguments. A pros and con of this as well. So if there are two options vying for supremacy, then you have to have four columns of arguments. Pro and con for this and pro and con for that as well. It's called the pan process. What's the meaning of pan? Pan means going across. Pan American Airlines. Pan African Games, you go across. In other words, you don't stay in one place. You look at both. Honestly look at both. Pan also is the process of sifting. They panned for gold in, in California. What's the, what's the process? You knock off the unwanted rock and you keep the nuggets of gold. Sift. Pan also happens to be the first three letters of my family name, Pandit. In fact, this is the process that I used when I was actually searching. By the way, I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist in India. I grew up as a Christian. I will acknowledge that. But when I was asking these questions, I had to put it aside, all my beliefs. And it took me 20 years of search. And that is the basis of what I present when I go out there. It's not just fly by night. It is something that I struggled with. So the pan process requires four columns of arguments. Column one is arguments for atheism, for the claim that there is no God. Column number two, arguments against the belief that there is a God. Column three, arguments for the belief that there is a God. Column number four is arguments against the belief that there is no God. So we'll quickly go through some of these and see whether they yield something that we can show that make good sense. By the way, you will never have proof on this earth of anything. All you can have is the weight of evidence, not the proof. And we are told that. Don't look for final proof because our minds are too small to acknowledge all the information there is. Only when you have acknowledged all can you have the absolute truth. No human can reach that position. All we can find is the weight of evidence. Has this God of truth, if he's in existence, shown us the weight of evidence? And that's what we're going to look for. Uh, we won't do all four. We'll do maybe one, and if there's time, we'll do two. Column number one. What's column number one? Arguments? Four. Saying what? There is no God. What are the arguments for saying there is no God? None. And when I say that, David says, oh, None? Yes, none. Why? Number one, the proof of atheism is actually disproof of theism, which is column two, not column one. 
In column one, you do not have anything. Why? Because the statement is in the negative. There is no God. God is non-existent. A negative statement is valid only when every possibility has been exhausted. Give you an example. If I sat here and made the pronouncement that there is in this hall nobody by the name of Subodh Pandit. How many names should I know? Every name. To make a negative statement, you should be able to exhaust all the possibilities. Only then is a negative statement valid. Got it? Now that's a negative statement. So now let's apply it. If there is a God, should there be one, he should be somewhere. You can't say he's nowhere. If you say he's nowhere, then he's not in existence. But he's got to be somewhere. Say, do you know every nook and cranny of your town? No. Of your state, of your country, of the globe, earth? Have you been to the moon, 232,000 miles away? No. Have you been to the sun, 93 million miles away, and the sun is only one star in our Milky Way galaxy? How many stars have the astronomers guesstimated for us? 200 billion in our own Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies have they told there are, that might be, looking out through a Hubble telescope to the farthest reaches of where we can go to in sight? 600 billion they have counted. Galaxies. Have you been to any of those? Then on what basis will you sit up here and say, I checked it all out, he's not anywhere. <laughs> Furthermore, this God can also possibly move around. So, if, I, if he went to the kitchen and I went looking for him to the kitchen, he could have gone to the living room. If I went looking for him in India, he would have gone to Canada. What are we stating then that to really make a claim, one must have access to all possibilities at all times. All possibilities where? In the universe. At, all, at the same time. What is this called? Omniscience and omnipresence, the attributes of God. So to say that there is no God, you should have the attributes of God. But if you have the attributes of God, you might as well call yourself God. But once you say you are God, then you can't say there is no God. So we have caught ourselves really mixed up here. Therefore, in this column, there are no arguments. None. There's nothing basic in this, in this column. Are you thinking? I, this, is, uh, this calls for thinking cap to be put on. Are you thinking? I make them think. In fact, the most common response when I finished, and in, and in the university, there's a mixed group of all kinds of people sitting in front. The most common response is not they're upset. You know what they do? They scratch their heads and say, boy, you made me think. Yeah, you made me think. I thought you guys were dummies. I thought you had lost your marbles. But here you're making me think, man. That's how they say it. Look, my friend, that is planting a seed. Make you think. Don't dismiss it. Because while you are thinking, now I step down to be a Christian now, while you are thinking, the Holy Spirit might you know, use a little, his own magic there. So think. So that is column number one. Stretch out. And while you're stretching out, think. Think of what we have said so far. Is this really true? Can I stand it? Do you know 45 to 55% of Seventh-day Adventists who go to secular universities never come back to the church? Why? They are swept off with these twin waves. Atheism, no God, and evolution. And we do not seem to have an answer. I am suggesting that we do have an answer. It's only that we don't know it. So if you're humble enough and you learn it up, by the way, all the stuff that I'm putting on the screen is in my book. I've authored a book. It's again the same title, Come Search With Me. And in it is the whole notes of all that I speak out there. Uh, it will be available. I'm not sure where the, they put my table for me, but sometime today and tomorrow there will be a limited supply of those books and an audio book CD 
Uh, if you're interested, you can go there. Have you stretched out? Yes, we have. So, column number two, arguments against the claim that there is a God. There are four or five or six I put there. Number four is what we're going to look at because it, it really bugs everyone. It really, you know, vexes everyone. Evil, pain, suffering. Epicurus, this is about 300, 400 BC. This is what he said. He was a Greek philosopher. Either he, God, is not good or else he is not almighty. And David Hume, about 200 years ago, one of the top philosophers on earth at that time, he said, is he, God, willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is important. No strength. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Hey, he's got a bad heart. Is he both able and willing? When then is this evil that I'm seeing all around me? And Stendhal, when he was looking at it, uh, at this huge contradiction, he said God's only excuse is that he does not exist. How to answer this? In other words, evil constitutes the biggest single argument, the biggest single stumbling block one of the most crucial protests raised by unbelievers against the fact of God. Have you heard that? Yeah. So here's what the the, the problem is. You say there's an almighty and loving God. So he's really loving and he can do everything that that he wishes to do. Then how come there's so much of pain and suffering and sorrow? Evil in the world. Can you reconcile those two? They are contradictory. And they're horrible, it's a horrible contradiction. When in response to that, we are not going to answer the question that evil and suffering raises until we figure out whether there is a God. So our question right now is, is this contradiction a reasonable argument against the existence of God? Is it truly a most crucial, biggest single argument against the existence of God? That's the question we are asking. We are not asking, can you reconcile? We are asking, can this contradiction prove that there is no God? Because it's so vexing that people say, hey, I can't, uh, I can't reconcile these two. And if I cannot reconcile the best and most reasonable thing, knock him off. He's not there. Then I have nothing to explain. So here's how we will go through it, step by step. Number one, who is upset because of the pain and suffering and evil? Everyone. The believer and the unbeliever. As a believer, I sometimes get upset. God, what is this? How How come so much? And if you are a Christian, most of us are, you read the Bible and you find all the greats in the Bible struggling with this. God, what is this? I thought you are, you know, you can do everything. Look at them, Psalms, Jeremiah. God, can I ask you one question? How come the evil ones are flourishing? How come? If both have the same observation and yet make opposite claims then whatever they're observing is not the deciding factor. There must be something else. Got it? That's number one. Both the sides are upset with this, but both of them are making opposite, opposite decisions. The believer is saying there's still a God, and you are saying there is no God. So whatever we are looking at is not the deciding factor. So pain and suffering is not the deciding factor. Number two, the problem is the contradiction. In the qualities in this God. He is loving and almighty and pain and suffering and love. Man, there's a severe contradiction. So it's the contradiction that is the problem. But a contradiction does not allow us to throw him out. A contradiction requires a reason, an explanation. For example, this guy is very nice in the morning, very nasty in the evening. Is he non-existent? No. He's just nice in the morning and nasty in the evening. I'm in very diametrically opposite features and characteristics, but he's in existence. In the, in the sense, well, let's say and take another example, a rod or metal rod. It can be both hot and cold. How? One end could be sticking into a log of ice and the other could be sticking into the fire. So the same rod is hot and cold. 
Contradictory features require an explanation, not a throwing out of the whole entity. So when you throw it out, you're not being reasonable in what you're doing. Number three, the contradiction is caused by supernatural qualities. Almighty, all-loving. If you take away the almighty and all-loving, we don't have a contradiction. Are you with me? Yeah. So only God possesses those almighty and all-loving. We don't. We are not all-loving. We are not almighty. So it is the existence of God with his supernatural qualities that causes the contradiction. So if you are describing the contradiction, you are describing the existence of the qualities. If you are describing the existence of the qualities, you are describing the existence of God. The very contradiction then. In other words, you cannot use God to prove the non-existence of God. Like you cannot use a hammer to show that there is no hammer. (laughs) You have a choice. Either you keep the contradiction and say it's horrible, but at the same time you've got to keep God because God is the one who's causing the contradictions. Or you drop the contradictions and you have no argument. Your biggest argument is gone. Number four. Humans do not uh, suffer 24-7, correct? Because we do have deep joys and exquisite pleasures as well. So if you, by your argument, are saying that evil and suffering points to the absence of God, then joys and pleasures should denote the presence of God because you are saying that it is the contradiction between his qualities and suffering that causes no God, Well, if there's joys and pleasures, then it is congruous with God. It is in line with God's almighty nature and his loving nature. So you have not won the argument because it's both. In other words, don't close one eye and look in one side, only pain and suffering. Open your eye. That's the other side that has joys joys and pleasures as well. Joys and pleasures then denote the presence of God because it's harmony, in harmony with him. If that's the case, then one cancels out the other. You do not have really a strong argument. That's number four. Number five. Actually, this clinches the issue on this point. If there is evidence for the absence of an entity, as well as evidence for the presence of that entity in the same jurisdiction, then that entity is present. If you have both. Let me give you an example. Suppose we are out at sea. And we want to see if there's land. You climb up on the mast and you have a 360 degree view of everything around you. And what are you looking for? Land. 359 degrees, nothing. The evidence? No land. All I can see is water. But at 360 degrees, I see in the distance a bitty little island Is there land in view? Of course. What happened to the other 359 degrees? There's a dictum that I'm going to put on the screen, and here it is. One piece of evidence for the presence will negate all the evidence for the absence. Why? Because absence is a totally negative state, which is impossible to prove, while even one tiny piece of evidence for the presence is in existence. 360th degree, I saw a piece of land. Therefore, land is in view. If we say then, ah, here's a statement by uh, Walter Smith. We dare not forget that even the tiniest island of order in the largest sea of chaos demands a creator of that small remaining order. So, applying it to what we are just saying, if evil and suffering which shows the absence of God as well as joys and pleasures which show the presence of God are present in our life, then God is present, God exists. So the question of pain and suffering, drawn to its logical conclusion, does not support the atheistic side, but places the argument on the side of theism. One of the strongest arguments against the existence of God actually points to the existence of God, if you go through it step by step like we have done. Just be patient. Look at it, go step by step, and when it's done, you got no argument, sir, on your side. You don't have anything for atheism. You hardly have anything against theism because your big arguments are gone. 
can you see the strength of our position as a believer? Who are we talking to? We're talking to the people out there. Ah, stretch out again. <laughs> and think while you're stretching out. Put on your thinking caps. See if you can get one or two of these arguments into your mind when you talk to those who laugh and mere jeer and mock at God. No, 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 don't mock. Listen. Become an inquirer with me. And if you're an inquirer with me, then look at these points. And if you're honest, hey, give the credit where it is due. And if you give the credit where it is due, boy, the weight of evidence is really tilting here. Let's go, let's do some more. Column number three, logical analysis. That's what we're going to do. I mean, there are many others. Logical. What's logic? Now, in a logic, you need two things. Number one, a base statement, a claim, that both sides agree. You can't start an argument <laughs> on a statement that both sides are not agreeing. That's not logical. You must state, make a statement that both sides agree, then on that statement you do the second thing, which are steps of reasoning. That is logic. A base statement that everyone agrees, and then the steps of reasoning. So let's look at quick four things that... Uh, Give a logical analysis for arguments for what? What are we looking at? Arguments for the claim that God exists. Okay, here we go. Logical analysis number one. All changes have causes. If something is going at five miles per hour and then suddenly ten miles per hour, there has to be a cause for that. If it's going to the east and suddenly starts going south, there's a cause for that. Every change has a cause. The most pertinent causes or, are, or the most pertinent changes are starting and stopping. Got it? Yes, the most pertinent ones. This universe did have a start. Do you know it took uh, the scientific community up until 1970s to agree? They wouldn't agree before that. No, this was, how do we know the universe had a start? We don't know. Then Einstein came along with this theory of relativity. And with those mathematical calculations, we knew that matter and energy had a starting place. And then Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking and another person got together and said, let's take the same, uh, the same field equations that apply to time and space. And when they applied it to time and space, lo and behold, time and space also had a beginning at the same time as matter and energy. So finally they agreed in the 1970s, okay, this universe had a starting point. Why did they not want it? Because if there's a beginning, there has to be a beginner. So now we're, we have actually reached the point. The universe had a start, so the universe has to have a cause. It can't, couldn't have happened by itself. That's logical, logical analysis, number one. Number two, the cosmos or the universe consists of what I've just said, matter, energy, time, and space. Now, nobody ever says that this pointer is the cause of the pointer. Nor does anyone say that this little table here is the cause of the table. In other words, no product is made to say that it caused itself. Something else. The manufacturer made this. The pointer didn't make the pointer. And the moment you say that, you recognize that the stuff in the pointer and the stuff in the maker is pretty different. And in other words, they are distinct. No product causes itself. So we cannot appeal to matter, energy, time, and space to be the cause of matter, energy, time, and space. It has to be something different and distinct from itself. Logical analysis number three is the order principle of science. Which comes first? The cause or the effect? Cause. First cause? Then effect. In other words, there's a timed principle when they're in a cause and effect. So there's something that precedes. So if the effect is the universe, then the cause of the universe preceded the universe by the order principle of science. Order principle of science number two is magnitude. The cause, in bold on the screen, the cause is invariably greater in magnitude than the effect it produces. Really? Yeah. 
If you have a hundred bucks in your wallet or in your purse and you got it from the bank, then everyone can reasonably deduce the bank has a little bit more than hundred to give you that hundred. If you went to the grocery store and brought a bag of groceries home, then the grocery store most probably had a little bit more than your one bag. The source or the cause is always bigger. So it's not very difficult, really, this argument. We don't have to do a, a detailed and complex experiment to do this. Just look around. And this universe and this world has life, thinking, matter, energy, time, space, laws of nature. So if that's the case, then the cause should possess abundance of life to give everybody their life. He should have more than you got, and more than I got. How many of us are on this earth? The population? Anyone? About 7 billion. Hey, he must be having a lot of life to give 7 billion. And not only them, but all the animals and insects and all the plants as well. Ooh, he must be having a lot of life to give. Logical analysis. How about his intellect? This is what Einstein said. His feelings take the form of rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. There's another statement in which he said that mind out there is infinitely superior to ours. This is Einstein. Infinitely superior. That means he's got a reservoir of intellect that is infinite, endless. How about energy? Do you know... Well, l l this, um, this mic, bitty little mic here, can you see it? It's black, that big, that's all it is. If we changed this mic completely to energy, do you know the special theory of relativity equation? E is equal to mc squared. M is what? Mass. C is what? The speed of light squared. So usually masses can give a lot of energy. So how much energy will come out of this one bitty little object if it is completely converted to energy? Do you know how much it is? It is equal to the, the energy in the atomic bomb that was blasted over Hiroshima. This little bit. If you turned it completely to energy. So now suppose turn the whole room into energy, now what? How about the whole world? How about the sun? How about 200 billion suns in our one Milky Way galaxy? How about 600 billion galaxies? What is the energy? That source should have a reservoir. It is reasonable then to say that that cause could be described as omnipotent, all-powerful. Look at how much energy he has placed in the universe. And what we see as the 600 billion galaxies is only one-tenth, only 10%. The rest of it is what they call dark matter and dark energy. Can't even see it. Think, my friends, of the energy. That's why Aristotle, by the way, Aristotle lived in the B.C.s, but he was the father of modern-day logic. And when he started thinking of the cause, this is what he said. He, he ascribed the following attributes to the being whom he considered the explanation of the world. Two things that I have highlighted, omnipotence and omniscience. So, on logic, that's all he came to. Our conclusion, logical analysis... The universe has a cause, it's distinct from the universe, it preceded the universe, and is possibly omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Think, this conclusion was reached without a single reference to any religious author or writing. Just plain information with logic. Friends, we stand on solid ground. Don't we? Yeah. Why are we ashamed to say there's a God? We don't have to bang their heads with it, but at least have some good argument there. You can chat with them. I chat all the time. I don't have to really hit at them. I say, you really think so? And they will be sitting there, you know. Hey, you say there's a God? Really? And usually our uh, natural inclination, of course there is a let me tell you why. <laughs> let me show you. But that's not what I do. Do you know what I do? I ask them a question. 
when they come and sat. Do you believe there's a God? Why do you say there's a God? I asked them this very simple question. Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? Do you know why I asked this question? Because I have in my pocket all the answers. <laughs> you really want to know? Come and sit with me. Come search with me. I will show it to you. I will show it to you, not my language. I am a religious guy, so I'll have a religious language. I'm not going to use my religious language. I will use your language. I will come onto your turf. And on your grounds, I will show you that what you're laughing at is the truth of the matter. Don't laugh anymore. And I've had atheists, hard-nosed, staunch, rank atheists, becoming believers in one hour. Why? Because I just showed them that what you're stating doesn't, doesn't stand to scrutiny. Here's the evidence. Stretch out. Are you thinking? <laughs> We've done three so far. I hope you can pick out at least some for you to use in your, in your, uh, uh, in your missions to the world. We are not going to the world. Didn't I show you that? We are not. We are in one respect, but there's a huge deficiency. And the reason we are not going out there is because we are not equipped to go there. But I'm showing you, you can be equipped. You can be equipped well. You shall be the head and not the tail. That is the promise. But sometimes we are at the tail. Because we have not humbled ourselves enough to learn. But once you do that, Boy, are you strong. So uh, we've stretched right and taken a deep breath and let's go to number four and then we'll wind up with that. Column number four is arguments against saying there is no God. I will go to number three. You see, if there is no God that created this whole universe, then the whole universe came from absolutely nothing. You have got no other choice. Think. Either there's a God or there was absolutely nothing. And do I say that? No, they themselves say that. Here it is. So from nothing our universe begins. So where did the laws of nature come from? They came from nothing. The void out of which the universe arose. The only reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing and for nothing. Yes, it's so strong. And when I asked, what's it based on? <laughs> nothing. Yeah, think. Is it based on anything? No, it's an opinion. Hey, please base it on something so that we can have a conversation. If you don't base it on anything, then I will say yours also is nothing. <laughs> now let's look at that. So we tend to just toss it off. Then let's not toss it off. Like I said, we'll drop our belief and you drop yours. Let's search together. So you said nothing. Okay, let's look at it. Let's build the wall of China. But I'll give you no material, no builder, no time, space, not even you. <laughs> and then when you're ready to complain <laughs> to me, even I'm non-existent. <laughs> Absolute nothingness as a starting point is physically totally impractical. Philosophically, absolute nothingness cannot be imagined. Have you ever tried? You know, when I was doing this, I tried to imagine, but I can't imagine absolute nothingness because I'm always there <laughs> in my mind. You can't use your mind and say that I'm thinking of absolutely nothing because you're using something. You got it? That which cannot be imagined cannot be proposed as a scientific theory. There is no starting point to make or evaluate the theory. Even fantasy fiction must first be imagined, then written down. You cannot imagine absolutely nothing. Just try it and you'll go nuts. It's impossible. Philosophically, absolute nothingness as an origin is an impossibility. It does not even come. In other words, what does it look like? Hey, there's nothing. What to look like? What's it color? I don't know. Texture? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. You can't even use a symbol because the symbol itself is something. You can't even use silence because nobody knows what your silence is. You are either trapped in a total inability to describe absolute nothingness or it is totally unreal. 
Therefore, we say that the origin could not have been absolute nothingness. Now, the third way in which we are going to look at it is mathematics. Science may be represented, represented as common sense wrapped in mathematics. That's true, especially physics. Physics is a precise form of science, the most precise form. And you cannot have a statement of physics unless it is equivalent to a mathematical uh, uh, formula. Without a mathematical formula, you cannot have physics. Everything has to be made into a mathematical formula. Uh, they told me about this mathematician, and I think she was in Michigan, a brilliant mathematician. Any statement in physics, you just take to her and tell her, I'd like to make a formula, and she will turn it into a mathematical formula. By the way, you cannot even say the word gravity in physics, because gravity has to have a mathematical formula. It is related to the mass of the two objects, directly related, and inversely or conversely related to the square of the distance. That is gravity. If you don't say these two things, it's not gravity. In other words, in physics, you've got to have a mathematical formula. You take a sentence and make it into a mathematical formula. So let's try that here. So what is the sentence of the atheistic proposal? And what's the sentence of the theistic proposal? Here it is. Atheistic proposal. Nothing did nothing about the nothing and produced everything. Now that really is the truth. That's what the claim is. Whereas the theistic proposal is someone did something about the nothing and produced the universe. So put it into a formula now. Zero plus zero plus zero is equal to 100. And the theistic side is x plus y plus zero is equal to 100. Which one has a chance? Look at the next two numbers. They're the same amounts of zeros and the same amount of numbers. Six zeros and a one is still one. But if you start with one, then the same number of digits is equal to one million. Why? Because zero as a starting point is valueless. Only a real number can give value or substance. Nothing as a starting point is valueless. You've got to have something there. So absolute nothingness Zero without any real numbers related to it as a mathematical premise and starting point is worse than absurdity. So absolute nothingness is physically impractical, philosophically impossible, mathematically worse than absurdity. The uh, Latin aphorism, ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing, nothing comes. Now the next one or two minutes what some philosophers have stated when they have thought about this. So we are not alone. The believer is not alone in claiming that there is the supernatural in existence beyond the natural. Anthony Flew was one of the most influential scientists of the last hundred years. He wrote some of his theses and one of his uh, papers, it's called God and Falsification, was the most reprinted article in the last 100 years. For 60 years, he was, a, he was an Englishman. For 60 years, he was a complete, total atheist. Because his stand was, I should go where the argument leads. Those are the words of Socrates that Plato actually quoted. Go where the argument leads. And when he tried it, it was going towards no God. But then after 60 years of showing that there's no God, by the way, he wrote a book. It's called There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. That's the title of the book. The subtitle is How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Because after 60 years, some of them and said, hey, you got that big statement about, you know, go where the evidence leads and argument leads, and you're not doing it. He said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I'll show it to you. And they went through the arguments. In fact, when I read the book, and when I went through my own arguments, uh, I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody else, but I'm saying the arguments that I have presented are stronger than what he saw. This is what he said. The leaders of science over the last hundred years, along with some of today's most influential scientists, have built a philosophically compelling vision of a rational universe that sprang from a divine mind. The mind of God, a vision of reality that emerges from the conceptual heart of modern science and imposes itself on the rational mind. 
what he did not say. He did not say it comes from the conceptual heart of religious ideas and imposes itself on the blindly believing mind. He said it came out from the conceptual heart of modern science and imposed itself on the rational mind. And we already saw Einstein. Einstein agreed with Spinoza that he who knows nature knows God because the pursuit of science and studying nature leads to religion and God. And look at the other statement he stated, which is the first one. In view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human mind, am able to recognize, there are yet people who say there is no God. But what makes me angry is that they quote me for the support of such views. Stephen Hawking just passed away this year. Arguably the greatest mathematician and theoretical physicist that we had in existence at that time. Look at his words. Even if there is only one possible unified theory. Unified theory is the holy grail of physics. They want to figure out how to put these two, the quantum physics and the regular physics together. And they are unable to. It is just a set of rules and equations if there is such a theory. What is it that breeds fire or life into the equations and makes a universe for these equations to describe? You still have the question, why does the universe bother to exist? If you like, you can define God to be the answer to that question because there is no other answer. How about Charles Darwin himself? By the way, many people think of Charles Darwin as some kind of a devil. Uh, That's because of his theory of evolution. But he himself was a thoroughgoing church member. Church of England. Do you know where he's buried? In the Westminster Abbey. Next to whom? David Livingston. Yeah. So don't think that, yeah, he made a sign. He wanted to make a scientific theory. But he struggled in his heart. Look at his words. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one. Do you know where that is quote from? Origin of species. The big Bible where they say evolution is everything. But look at those words. And he wrote to a friend, the impossibility of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe as a result of blind chance or necessity. When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind, and I deserve to be called a theist, a believer in God. Why? Because when I look at my little bitty little plants and animals that I'm working out to find out if there's variations or the theory of evolution, that's one thing. But when I look up to the universe, then I've got to look for a first cause. There has to be something. Having an intelligent mind. And I do believe that, therefore I should be called a believer. Let's give him that credit, my friends. Like I said, give credit where credit is due. So here's the conclusion. Based on evidence, reasonable, logical thinking, the existence of the supernatural is valid and makes the better sense. Therefore, the existence of God is a rational, credible claim. So if you were the jury and I was the attorney, I would turn to you and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have placed before you the evidence. I rest my case. Thank you. We have um, five minutes. We're almost done. You know, when you are able to stand before people and state it in a simple, clear-cut, full of information way, rather than just, I believe, then we will make a difference. And I have now been, I've been doing this for 15 years. This is my 15th year. And like I said, I'm basically speaking to the secular universities out there. I do not make an itinerary. I go where I'm called. And over the last 15 years, I've been to five continents to speak to those who question God. Once you decide that there's a God, you also now have to decide what's his name or identity. Which one is it? And that's the next part. We don't have time for all that, but we will do one more tomorrow afternoon uh, about that question. Is there a way in which there's a pointer to describe who this God is? And there is. If we followed it as an inquirer, carefully, honestly, humbly, and calmly. So now, I have showed you that as a people, we are not doing this. We're very good at what we are doing right now. Yeah, state of the dead and the Sabbath and three angels message and 
and uh, the sanctuary service, all are good. Don't leave out this. Because this is the way to the five billion that is not even right now on our radar. We got to speak to them. And if you got to speak to them, then speak their language. And if you got to speak their language, then you got to learn it. It doesn't come naturally. Learn it up. Everyone doesn't have to be an apologist like this. But some of you can. But all of us can know in our minds that a true Christian apologist will always hold the top place. So here's the ending. If there's an uninformed uh, secular mind and an uninformed Christian, we don't know what might happen. If there is an informed atheist and an uninformed believer, the atheist might win in the discussion. But here's the real point. If there's a fully formed atheist, scientific, rational thinking atheist, and a fully formed Christian believer, the Christian believer will win all the time. Why? Because where there is truth, truth will always win over shaky bits of theories and and, and hypotheses. We have a God who has given us the truth. He is the God of truth. I serve him. Do you? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.